Welcome to Every Nation Rosebank. Please note that the views, opinions, assertions and theology of the following speakers and panel members do not necessarily represent the view of Every Nation Johannesburg or its leaders or elders. These speakers were invited to create dialogue and discussion on this matter and their views are their own. Enjoy the discussion. Glass, that's, uh, that's great. Otherwise, thanks for, for, for being back and we're really excited to, to pick, pick up where we're going. Uh, just to re-emphasize that we're going to spend the next 30 minutes having a conversation uh, with our panelists and the 101 questions that have come through and, and Saviwe is going to uh, take us through those questions and point them to our guests. And then uh, after that, we're going to spend 45 minutes in small group conversation in terms of fleshing this out, and then we'll come back and close off, off the day. So if you've stayed after tea, thanks for staying. Really nice to see you. And uh, so we've got three new panelists on the, on the stage. Uh, I'm going to read their names. I'm just going to say their names out loud. You can guess who's who. We have Sinead on the stage, and she'll give us uh, three minutes just to sort of give us an intro. We've got Lucanio, and we've got Andrew. Um, we thought maybe we shouldn't introduce Andrew because he would look like, you know, Omlungus are the same. So we wouldn't have noticed if we swapped Andrew and Graham. But then uh, the problem was is that Graham is shaven, and that's the only reason we know the difference between the two. So, um, no, unfortunately not. Uh, uh, so, great. So I'm going to get each of our new panelists, maybe just give a quick introduction or a comment in terms of what you've heard. And then Sabiru is going to shoot off some questions. Um, and so while you're debating in terms of who you're starting, I was reminded this morning of a, of a conversation I had in Paul about a year ago. Uh, and it was a, a man talking about he, he's a colored guy. His family was forced to be removed out of the suburbs into what we call the um, colored community now in Paul. And every Sunday, his father would sit after lunch on the veranda and just stare out blankly across the street. Every Sunday, he would sit for hours just staring. And one day, um, the young man asked his father, what are you doing? Why are you staring? What are you doing? And his father's reply was, I'm waiting. And his son said, you're waiting for what, Dad? And he said, I'm waiting for somebody to come and apologize. And that man died with no apology. And that's, that, that has sat with me for such a long time. Um, uh, and so... That's something that I was reminded of this morning as we sat and heard our incredible speakers this morning. So who would like to shoot off first? Thanks, Lukanyo. Um, my name is Lukanyo, Lukanyo Nier. Uh, I, I don't do intros. Um, uh, and, and there's a talk that I did give a while back about why I don't tell my story. Um, and simply because I, I want my humanity to be given, to be given. Uh, I don't want to have to earn my humanity in front of you and perform my humanity. Um, so... Lukanya is my name. Um, uh, I'm grateful for this conversation taking place at HP, uh, Every Nation, sorry. Um, I've been around since what, yes. two, 2002 or so uh, from Cape Town. Um, that's my first bit of gratitude, so thank you, Pastor Sai. Uh, my second one uh, is to um, Adam Sofu or, or Dr. Wallace remembers. Um, so he, he used to visit my grand a lot, uh, Kualanga. Yes, um, and so and so and so um, uh, just <laughs> and so seeing him again uh, uh, just uh, gets me. Um, so this is an, as more as person as I'll get, right? Um, and the third piece of gratitude is to is to Renee um, for just a, a, a 
and it's also beginning of my own reflections on this, um, is the, to avoid this, what Rene does, did so, so very well, is remove this, the schizophrenicness of God in the Old and the New Testament, right? Um, and I think we, we, we do this so often, and, and we, we want to, oh, but it's the God of the New Testament, uh, and, the, and, the old, and the God of the Old Testament is God. Uh, is gone. So I, I truly appreciate Renee. And I've known Renee for a number of years now, so she knows I, I'm a, I'm, she hates when I say, I'm a groupie. I, I love Renee. Um, uh, <laughs> so I, I, land for me is a, is, is a big one. And, 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 the, and the place where I start, in fact, is where Renee starts as well. At least where Renee touched us on. So I'll, I'll move quickly along there. I think Leviticus was great. Uh, agreed. Uh, so my theological argument begins there, begins with Levit- Le- Leviticus, Isaiah 61 as well, Luke 4. But what I find particularly interesting about Leviticus uh, and then through the other uh, two parties is how it speaks about a paradigm change, right? It's as if God creates an opportunity for the social order, for the political order, the, the economic order to change every 50 years. And so when you think again about the intersectionality of land with the issue of, of the social, political, the socioeconomic, we need to be aware how these things are all interconnected and there's, a, there's an interlockedness of them all. And so the other part where, and I, and I, and I stress the, the, the paradigm change because if we only talk about land and we give land, but the, the global um, uh, patriarchal, uh, global capitalist system exists and continues to exist, then the land that we give away will, will, will end up back with those uh, in power. So when we, give, when we talk about land, we have a conversation about the power dynamics as well. Um, and I think it's, it's not by chance that when Jesus uh, is born, Jesus is born to a person who is most marginalized in a society, who is most in fact, weak and poor. Um, and I think God, in, 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 uh, when, uh, when God chooses Mary to give birth to Jesus, God is deliberately changing the social order. Um, and I think when we consider a document that we're going to write, perhaps this document should, less, should, should be less about land, and I'll stop now. And perhaps this document should be about a moral vision that allows us to address and contend with and challenge and reimagine the social order, the political order, the economic order. Because if we simply only give back land, we'll end up where we are again if we don't change the power dynamics. Um, so, so, so these are my, my high-level thoughts on, on, on the matter. Yeah, so I'm the, I'm the voice of privilege on, this, on the panel, um, <laughs> which is a privilege. <laughs> so, I think to be fair to the process, I, I should not try to um, be too diplomatic, because I think there's a voice in the discourse that says... And I, this is a conversation that I'm sure Siv and I will have. That 150 years ago, how you created wealth was through land. 
And today you need an education and a laptop to create wealth. And we should put our energy into education. So that's, that's a thought for me. Um, and not as because that's my consensus view, but I think it's one of the views that we should talk about. I read a, a post this morning on, on, on Facebook that really got me angry. You can go and read my, re, my, my, my repost if you want. Which really, I think, is just the Holy Spirit tuning me with respect to justice. Um, so as my second, second comment. And I don't think that I have cared enough in my life about justice rather than about intellect and right and wrong and thinking about things that way. And so that's, that's my challenge as I'm listening this morning and learning. Um, is there's, there's, there's a real justice issue which is, doesn't have to make sense to me, um, but is a big part of, of how we talk about this. And then maybe just to say that for most, a lot of you who've sort of heard me speak in this house, um, identity is a big deal for me. Um, and I do think that if people think that a piece of land or wealth is going to fill the hole and make them feel like they have worth, I think it makes a contribution. But I don't think it's the only answer. I think in the end, God gives us that peace and rest that this is who I am. I'm a child of the king, and that's my identity. Um, but I do think that, as Graham explained, I can remember when I bought my, my first house, it is a significant part. And I think sometimes people who have land are, are in, engaging with this subject from the insecurity and the fear of losing the land, which is part of their identity. And I think people who don't have land engage in this in a, in a place of, of hurt and insecurity that they think that is going to fill. Um, but in the end, I think we have to really, as Christians, make sure that we are engaging with the root issue, which is who I am and what makes my life meaningful and how am I contributing uh, for God's kingdom to come on earth. Um, and that's a conversation between you and God. That's great. Just in case, before, sorry, just in case some people think Saviwe is playing Candy Crush. He's, uh, he's, just, uh, he's just going through the questions that you sent. Yeah. Uh, making sure that uh, everyone, because I know some people are like. seven books of the Bible, just yes, checking. Yeah, just checking. Thanks. So, so, so just in case people are concerned. Apologies. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Sinead. I'm a cultural studies scholar. Uh, since 2008, I've been conducting research together with two San communities up in the Northern Cape, the Ku and the Kwe communities. They were restituted land uh, as part of the government's land restitution program. And so I came in on the scene with them when they were restituted land. They already had um, thing, uh, houses, uh, RDP houses built on the on, on the farm, um, and so the, the research that I've conducted with these communities deals with issues of identity, belonging, heritage, um, uh, just the, the kind of themes that have been flowing through today's discussion in terms of land, and so um, um, I'm coming to this with these um, the, looking at these communities as a kind of microcosm of the larger South African 
um, concern and how sometimes the challenges that they have, they, they currently have, um, have still been brought in from the time that they didn't have land. And, and so the idea of intersectionality is really key here because just because land was restituted doesn't mean that those issues have been sorted out. So looking through, looking through that lens of a small group of people on the margins of society, the very margins of our society, uh, where the global contradictions are the sharpest and how that might um, speak to what we're trying to do on a larger platform. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Cool, great. So off you go. All right, um, Dr. Wallace, uh, I'm gonna give you the first question uh, since you didn't visit my grandmother. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, uh, which land qualifies to be returned? Uh, what if there's a white family who bought it legally? Um, how do we actually define the kind of land that should be redistributed? Redistributed or restituted? Restituted, redistributed, let's, let's go for both. Okay. Because, I mean, when it comes to restitution, it would normally re relate to land which was previously dispossessed as a result of racially discriminatory laws or practices of government. Yeah. Then the, both the Constitution and the Act, the Restitution Act, say that as far as it is feasible, that land should be restored. And secondly, if that is not feasible, because for example, a town has been built up there, it's not gonna be feasible to restore. Mm. Then the next remedy is that alternative land should be made available by the state as compensation. And of course, um, thirdly, um, financial compensation should be considered. And when it comes to redistribution, because redistribution is a second arm, I mean, because there are three arms in land reform or, st or streams. It's the land restitution, redistribution, and tenure reform. Land tenure reform. With, re with redistribution, uh, the state is looking at people who have got need for land, hunger. Mm. They don't have a previous relationship to that land, but they have a need for land. So the state would normally look at state land that the state can dispose of and make available to those people. Or acquiring land in the market that it, the state buys for the benefit mm -hmm. of those people who have applied for land redistribution. And of course, in, with Kenya, a reform is um, looking at people who have some occupation on land, but have a, a, an insecure tenure, mm -hmm. a precarious and tenuous you know, tenure. Then the state finds a way of uh, strengthening the form of tenure that they have in relation to that land. Not sure. That's great, yeah. that's great. Anyone else wanna chip in on that? Uh, and I'm looking to Dr. Sinead here, especially with your experience of 
uh, the Khoi, Khoi land, which is kind of like a, a, an issue and a question that also came up today. If we're talking about redistribution, how far back do we go? And how do we uh, define you know, the responsibility to the Khoi side? So recently there have been in, in, the, in the news where traditional leaders are, are coming up um, and talking about things like that. And then you can see because of, the, um, because of what happened in our history, there have also been lots of contradictions about that because then who then is identified as San, who yeah. is identified as Khoi um, because of uh, miscegenation and, and all sorts, um, um, 1652 when Jan van Riebeek came, came over here. So, um, as far as the communities that um, that I deal with, uh, they they have three farms. Um, one of which uh, other farmers will farm because the community doesn't have the resources, uh, nor do they have the skills. Um, these particular communities happen to be um, people that uh, they 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 fought in the south, in the SA, SADF. Um, so it was a very very kind of shady past in terms of fighting on the wrong side um, for, for the South Africans. But now, they, now they're, they're here, they have land, they have South African IDs because they were from Angola and Namibia. Um, but, but they're poverty stricken. And there are, um, we were talking about taxis. There are no taxis that go two, two kilometers outside of Kimberley where this farm is to go pick people up to take them back to the city to do work. So people can't walk that those distances. Also, between them and the city is the rubbish dump. Um, so it, it's these questions of which land, where, and what is that land? What is that land going to mean to these people? Because if they, um, the government did build uh, RDP houses, but those houses are falling apart. Mm. Um, there are people who are uh, they cook outside. They don't have electricity. Um, it's a 95% unemployment rate. Those, those things are the things that we need to consider. Land itself is not an answer. Um, all these questions that came up today about dignity, poverty, wealth, um, those are the questions that needed to have been considered and how these people were going to be plugged into um, an already, I mean, it's a flawed system, but it's, it's a system that is working for other people where you go to work and you, get, you earn a salary. There are people uh, who, these are people who have been restituted land, but they don't have access to all the other things. So we have to think about the all the other things mm, part. That's great. So can we elaborate, maybe uh, everyone in the panel, if you can kind of, or as much as, of you guys as possible, elaborate on the other things. Um, the justice system and what, what needs to precipitate the land uh, discussion or the land issue? What are some of the things that we, we, we look to land as a, so, as, a, as, a, as a way to solve the problem, but actually they, they causes and effects uh, that take place even before we get there? Uh, Renee? Um, <clears throat> like I said, I'm not a scholar in this area, so maybe I should stick with what I know. Um, my family on my mother's side... My great-grandmother had a house in an area called Weinberg in Cape Town. And so it was a four-bedroom house. That area was declared white, and so she had to move out. Um, and we couldn't find a place to live. Now, my great-grandmother had given this house to my mother on the condition that she could live with us until she died. 
And so she had the title deed, but you know, there was an agreement within the family that this house now belonged to our family. So we ended up living in Mitchell's Plain, and, mm. and we were given compensation for the house. We were given 5,000 rand for a four-bedroomed house with a big plot in Weinberg, and we were moved to Mitchell's Plain to a house about half that size, and we had to pay 12,000 rand for it. Wow. Included in the cost of the house was a bond from the bank with a fixed interest rate over 25 years. Do you see what I'm saying? Wow. A fixed interest rate means there's no benefit to paying the house off quickly. And so there's a generation of poverty that was legalized mm. through the simple Group Areas Act. Now, we moved to Mitchell's Plain. My father's working in Milneton. You add on 26 kilometers each way to his commute every day. That changes his quality of life. My dad is gone at six in the morning and he's home after six at night. I don't get to spend that much time with him anymore. Mm. So, you know, that changes a family dynamic. And then he spends more money on petrol. Um, we were living in an area where there was a very good school. Now for us to continue to go to that school, you have to get up at what time in the morning, there's the commute, there's, there was no schools in the area we were moved to in Mitchell's Plain. When we moved into this house, there were no streets, there was no shop, there was no school, there was no church, there was nothing but sand. Um, and, and then after living there for 21 years, um, my mom is able to sell that house for um, 900,000 rand. The same house that we owned in Weinberg is now on the market for 3.5 million. Wow. So, I don't know what the issues are, but it's not as simple as land. Mm -hmm. um, if you were a white child in this country, in the 70s, the government would subsidize your education by 48 rand per day. If you were colored, 12 rand per day. If you were black, 5 rand per day. Now you multiply that by 12 years of schooling. That means that if you are white in this country, if you're talking about this conversation about how we make it right, you need to educate eight black children. Wow. Just for you. That's just education. And that's the beginning of a justice conversation. That's not restitution. Mm -hmm. That's nothing to do with land. Um, we have, you know, one police officer for 20,000 people. Um, I don't have to talk about hospitals. I'm asthmatic. My parents had to rush me to Red Cross Hospital regularly as a child. Wow. So the commute of that was significant. And then the kind of access we had to healthcare um, white doctors never treated black children. So you had to, they limited through a system only so many colored doctors and only so many black doctors. Mm. So now you must wait for a free colored doctor to pay attention to you when you're having an asthma attack as a child. I shared those stories and examples because all of those consequences come as a result of a land act. And so... Restoring the land, I mean, if somebody has legally bought the land, the question is, well, what rights were given to you mm. to be able to buy that land? Because if you were black, you couldn't. 
even if you had the money. You couldn't choose where you lived. And now with restitution in the Eastern Cape, we also, my grandfather, great-grandfather, and father lost land as a farm. We now given a piece of land as part of the restitution over there. Then, if you want land, you must live on that land for 10 years before you can sell it. I live in Cape Town. I don't want to go live back in the Eastern Cape in the middle of Durangon where I don't know anybody. Mm. Oh, but if you don't want the land, then you can have less than 10% of the monetary value of the property. And so from three farms generationally inherited, I personally, divided by three, end up with less, less than 2,000 rand. And I must go to the Eastern Cape to sign the paper so that I can get the money. Mm. So, um, you know, there's just, it's, it's very complicated. Mm. And a simple law of a land act or a group areas act created a system that makes particularly white people rich and black people poor at the same time. It's not the wealth of the rich that creates poverty. It's the system that creates the wealth mm. that also creates the poverty. And so the work we must do is to change the system That's great. before we look at any one solution. That's great. <laughs> so, Dr. Wallace and, and then Lukang. I think, uh, in a sense, just to mention that uh, the closest I was, uh, I came to um, a relationship, well, quite a relationship, was with this Koi and the Sen, is when I was still a um, regional commissioner in the Northern Cape. I dealt more with the claim of the Schmidt community, which is across the road, and not so much with the Koi and the Sen, who had just come back at that time from Namibia. And I think the, in, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm saying that, I would say that if one had to deal with that, because the first thing that was just wrong, where they are the, at the moment, um, they were urbanized. These are people who are used culturally to be in the forest, but they were forced to come and stay in, in a township area. They built houses, and houses which they have never even requested because they are used to living in the, in the forest and in structures. And the government could have you know, provided a kind of infrastructure that would suit them. Uh, everything else. And then they were forced into going to schools. Going, their whole lifestyle was completely undermined. So the point that I think Graham was making earlier about um, land being um, a cultural symbol was quite important. And land also being um, some form of dignity to people. Those are important things to consider. And, um, and hence, in a sense, one is make, we're making the point that locking people up in a legalistic system has grave um, limitations. I mean, as opposed to encouraging people to resolve the land conflict through an alternative dispute resolution, which is much more open-ended and also encourages the parties that are involved to explore the best possible solutions 
that will meet their needs. And a lot of creativity can come, in, can come into that. And then the state's role would be to resource such negotiated outcomes that the parties have uh, arrived at. That's good. To, to Lucanio and Andrew, staying on the same theme of systems, but I want to add another caveat to it, communism and capitalism, and how people are looking to either one of those as a foundational uh, uh, you know, jumping point to, to kind of fix the issues. What are your thoughts around that? Uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. That, that was just for you. I just saved that for you. So I've declared my position right from the beginning that I think the, the idea of the capitalist system as we understand it is incongruent with justice. Um, we, the way the capitalist system thinks about work, yeah. the way it thinks about who belongs, um, is most incongruent. Um, in fact, there's a, I think it's Cedric Roberts in, in the US, a, a scholar who talks about racial capitalism. Um, and, and racial capitalism is essentially what continues to power the continued uh, enslavement of, of, of human beings. Um, and so when we talk about justice, when we talk about who belongs in society, who matters in society, we need to have a serious look at capitalism. Now I say this as, a, as, as an entrepreneur as well, right? Uh, so I, I, I'm fully aware of my walking contradictions of this. But I think they are, they, they, I mean, we, we have a slight window at the moment, right? And I think this so-called fourth industrial revolution does give us a slight window to possibly address this. Because it means the future of work has to change. The future of work has to change, one. Two, it also means Right. <laughs> let's go there, let's go no, there. No, 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 I'll come back, I'll come back. We, right. might, so, we, we might not come back again. I'll find it, I'll find it. So, so, so I think uh, when, when we then talk about, when we then talk about um, uh, the, the systems, right, we need to seriously look at what, what these systems mean because racial capitalism specifically is a thing that empowers all this, this other part, so indebtedness, right? Mm. The, when we talk about uh, uh, giving land, so so will give land, but then there's a thing I think Graham spoke about security, right? The financial system itself, we need to have a conversation about. That, I mean, apart, I think, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll try it up, up quickly, right? There's a, there's a academic Dr. Nomalangam Kize, who wrote a paper for the, wrote an article in the Daily Dispatches last week. She's saying the, the land question we shouldn't even have a, com a conversation about is the one of land in the rural areas in the bunch of stands, right? And, and that's, that's, that's the least of our concerns because the people have land at least, right? They have land. But the problem with this land, though, is that you aren't able to use it as security. Now, this, this says something about the system that says even though as a black person you have access to lots and lots and lots of land, we don't care about your land. Mm -hmm. Now, when we then say that the land problem has, has a, a long-term issue, for me at least, that so we can all, we'll all be given land today, right? We agree we'll have, we'll have land. Now, but if we, keep, if we keep racial capitalism in place, if we keep the global financial system in place as we understand it, then the systems that we use of security will change, right? We will have land today, but then the banks will say, no, we no longer use land. 
because it's important to exclude the other. So part of the issue we have here is an issue of excess capital, excess labor at the moment. We have an issue of excess labor. This is why the fourth national revolution gives us a possible out. How would we possibly address this issue of the future of work? But then secondly, we need to think about what it means to live in a society with a global financial system as we understand it. And if you aren't willing to contend with it, now, now I, 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 I could offer thoughts, and, and I won't, on, 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 on communism and socialism. Um, uh, I won't, but I think it is important for us to consider a third way sooner rather than later. And mm. this is why I make the, 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 the argument that it, it has to be a paradigm change and not simply a, a change of mind. Great. All right, Andrew. I hope I look intimidated by this question. So, yeah, your previous question was, what are some of the groundwork? What are some of the sort of preconditions? And, and talking, I think, to white people, or privileged people, for a moment, and I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, to some extent, somebody coming and taking your one acre when you've got two, or your tax rate going to 60%, is the simple solution. Because you can write that a check and it's done, and you can continue with your world as it was. And so I think a, a big part is to actually get it into people's lives and faces and actions so that we can start engaging mm -hmm. at a human level. Because the ramifications, it's just through all those amazing examples that Rene mentioned, were very human. It wasn't just a financial transaction. So to some extent, our system trying to turn everything into a random amount is, 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 is a really big problem. Um, so whether it is that I use the business experience that I have built up because of my privilege to mentor those who don't uh, as my way of, of using my privilege, or whether it is finding children that I can sponsor through school and university, it has to take more than just writing out a check. Mm. The, the, the issue of capitalism and, and communism, I think the, at the, the problem at the root of both of them is, is, is fallen humanity. My understanding, and I, I studied BSc, so for those who studied more, please excuse me, but my understanding is that communism does rely to a huge extent on the, on the skills and the benevolent intent of the leaders who, who will not enrich themselves, but really care. And if you had those leaders, it, I think it would work. But in practice, human beings in a fallen world don't go there. Anybody who thinks after 2008 that, that business and capitalism is going to solve all the problems really <laughs> are deluding themselves. And how quickly the banking system has just gone back to the same old stuff that was so apparently breaking the system in 2008 just boggles my mind. So, so I think the, the getting to the root issues of um, dignity, we, all the things we've spoken about, rather than trying to make the debate superficial because we're too lazy to think through to the root issues, mm. Um, I think is a personal journey. 
And, and wherever we are and our sphere of influence and our particular privileges and challenges, um, really try and, and stop being lazy, but to think through uh, to, to what are those, those real issues uh, that are going to create sustainable solutions and, and that are going to take my own focus off me and my security because I'm actually not trusting in God. Um, yeah. Great. Sinead, and then I just want to ask two questions, one for Dr. Wallace and Renee, and then we'll, we'll close. So I just want to piggyback on uh, what Andrew said. Um, I think part of the systemic problem, to take it back to the church, is that our, a lot of our theology has become very me-orientated. And you hear it in the songs that we sing during worship. It's about me, Lord, I, Lord, I feel this way about you, when it's supposed to be the other way around. It's supposed to be about what he feels about us and how that changes our lives. And I think what um, it's, it's in our, it's in, it's, it's so, it's so much, it's seeped into us now. It's really about me and Jesus, but it's not about me and Jesus. It's not supposed to be about just me and Jesus. Um, and when our, when our, our churches are so me-orientated, then we don't have the, the Zacchaeus experience. When Zacchaeus met Jesus and he, he was met with his sin and the impact of his sin, he saw himself for the first time as who he really was and what he really was, but the grace of God was there. And he said, I will give half of what I own because he was a tax collector and he had taken things, um, he had stolen from the poor and that's how he had, he'd created his wealth. And he said, I will give half of what I own to the poor and for... for for who I, I have taken from, I will give four times back. And I, I wonder how much of, because of this me and my family um, doctrine, dogma, I wonder how much of the Zacchaeus experience we have lost because we have not been able to find the, the God in, in, in the community. And so, um, as a brown person talking to white South Africans, <laughs> who have white privilege and who have had had the privilege of not just your, your, your cultural capital, but actual capital. Think about that experience in your Christianity and whether or, whether or not you have, um, you've kind of pushed away from that experience because it's too uncomfortable. Great. All right. So, thank you, Dr. Sinead. Uh, just branching off of there, um, Renee, why do you think the church has lagged in the justice issue? What, what are some of the things that you've seen as you've gone from different churches as to why have we kind of lagged in dealing with justice courageously um, and intentionally? I think because we've left reading the Bible to the professionals. Good. I think because our theological education comes predominantly out of Europe and an individualistic culture. I also think I would agree with you about the I. I mean, it's not just the songs, it's everything. So one of the things I tell people is, when, next time you sing a worship song, take all the eyes out and put we's there. Um, and when you pray, take I out of your prayer. And, and if you pray for God to bless your child, then bless all children, Lord. Mm. I pray for the education of my child and all children in this country and the world. When I pray for my daily bread, it's, the Lord's prayer is clear. Give us today our daily bread. It is not your daily bread. 
And so, um, just bad theology and abuse of certain texts. For example, the parable of the talents. Mm. You know, where the, this is the context, a landowner um, calls his slaves and gives to each one five to one. And, and we believe that the landowner is God. It's not. The Bible changed those words, the introduction to that parable. There's an introductory line that was changed about 300 years ago that suggests that this is a parable about the kingdom of God, but it's not. Go do your research. This is a commentary on the Roman Empire. But because the introduction says so too, we think this is God and that God is happy with inequality. You know, the one who gets five talents makes another five. Tell me of an investment program that yields 100% results. And, and then give me their number later. When it says the man who got five got, gave back ten, you're supposed to go, whoa. The question there is, who was wronged through the creation of that kind of wealth? It's supposed to shock the audience, but it doesn't shock us mm. because we've done such bad theology. Um, it says that they were slaves, so they give to the landowner what they earn. They get nothing. That's not the kingdom of God. And then the guy who buries the talent, who's the hero of the story, by the way, because he says, I refuse to participate in an unjust economic system. <laughs> when he's banished to the place where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth, that's the place where Jesus ends up. When he's on the cross. It's where all people who were crucified ended up. And so there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because this is a place of death. When you confront the empires that seek to devour and consume you, you may well end up like Jesus. Dead. Right. So, I think... Self-preservation, the cross of Jesus Christ <clears throat> is the antidote to self-preservation. And when you think of all these systems that generate poverty in this world, they have one core lie. I need to look after me. Mm. That is from the pit of hell and an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. Mm. And so... If we don't tell the truth and shame the devil, <laughs> then we end up with lies. Hey, hallelujah. All right, uh, Dr. Wallace, we're going to end with you. <clears throat> Next year, I think we go to the elections and we are voting. Help us vote. Um, what should we be looking for in a government? What, we, what should we be looking for in uh, the parties that are meant to represent us as it pertains to justice. Um, what should they be doing? What should they be saying? Especially with the work that you have done with them, not having to mention any party names. But as Christians, or however you 
have come here, but for you specifically, how are you going into those elections? What do you want to see in the parties that's going to make you tick that box? Well, I think um, for us as believers, we have a, a manual that guides what we do and what we, not, what we do not do. And I think that is quite a privileged position, which we don't fully realize and utilize. Because the Bible has everything that you can think of. I mean, when Solomon, the, the wisest man that ever lived, counts everything that is under the sun, and it's about things that are under the sun, because God is above the sun, and he calls them all vanity. Uh, we ought to, and, and because we as the body of Christ actually um, are God's hope for what God wants to do in the world. And because of that, if we stay close to what God says in his word, and of course without even also idolizing, you know, the Bible, because there is also that tendency of people idolizing the Bible, which is just a book that talks about who God is, because God cannot be contained in between the two covers of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. God is much bigger than that. The story goes that um, in, in Exodus, when Moses came down and found that people had actually um, made a golden calf, we normally say, we understand that to have said that he was so angry that he broke the tablets. But apparently the Hebrew people say he was actually afraid. There was fear that struck him when he saw this. That if these people, within this short space of time, are able to make a God for themselves of a golden calf, how much more when they receive these tablets? They will idolize them. And some of us, I mean, go to that extent of even, you know, idolizing the Bible. But it is a pointer. It, is, it gives us a glimpse of who God is and what his will is. Um, practically, then one is saying that we have got to always ask ourselves, God, what is your will for us mm -hmm. in this situation? And uh, we are familiar with uh, the things that are close to God, justice being one of them, and righteousness are the foundations of, of his throne. So we'd have to look at uh, leadership that somewhat matches when we benchmark what they are telling us mm -hmm. they are going to do, how close that is, that, how close that is uh, to what God wants to do. Uh, McDowell says that when God looks in a city, he doesn't just see the city, but he sees the church the body of Christ, because it is through the church that God fulfills. Because also mm -hmm. we've got to be careful about hoping that politicians are going to bring about change. That's good. We, the people of God, are the instruments, are the vessels through which change is going to come. Mm 
It's great. Thank you. I am amazed and very much impressed even by the, the glimpse of what I've observed of this church. And it gives me hope that you are a microcosm mm. of what God's going to do in the future. Mm. Amen. Thank, Amen. Thank you so much. Can we um, give a hand to our panelists?